I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Who is to blame for the Santa Cruz Mountains? Well, I'll tell you whose fault it is. Andreas. That's right. The San Andreas Fault has been crunching up land along California's coast and has pushed up some mountains above the fog line that are great for growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. The San Andreas Fault is the result of two tectonic plates pushing up against one another. The Pacific Plate is pushing upward and to the west, while the North American Plate is pushing downward and to the west. But because the Pacific Plate is pushing a bit harder, the North American Plate seems more like it is moving towards the east. If you can imagine 20 million years in the future, if nothing changes with the plate's current motions, LA will literally slide up alongside San Francisco. That's right, in 20 million years, you might have a view of the Golden Gate Bridge from Hollywood. But for now, the Santa Cruz Mountains are in the way. It's these mountains that separate the Pacific from the San Francisco Bay. It's these mountains that prevent a wall of fog from barreling in from the ocean. The plates are brushing by one another at approximately 35 millimeters each year. And some geologists posit that they've already slid past one another for about 350 miles. But if you look back even farther, say, a hundred million years, you'll see that this particular area of the planet has undergone many, many changes. At times, the Pacific has washed over it. Ancient volcanoes have thrusted up out of the water to great heights, only to have winds and water eroded back down, and crust movement has built it back up again. The San Andreas Fault has given us the most recent iteration of the Santa Cruz Mountains. So in a way, we can thank tectonic plates for today's Santa Cruz terroir. Now that's some faulty wine. Oh, cut, 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 cut. Oh, I don't know why I wrote that line. Just thinking, just must have been using some faulty logic there. All right, let's try it again. Okay. <clears throat> Keep listening to hear more from one winemaker who's making great wine on the edge. Literally, it's on the edge of a fault. Can you blame him, though? 
It's not his fault. Well, in a way, a small part of it is. I guess we think it's It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Jeffrey Patterson of Mount Eden Vineyards in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Hello, sir. How are you? Thank you, Levy. Yeah, glad to be here. So you're originally from L.A. I grew up in L.A., born in Pasadena, and I spent all my childhood years in Covina in the San Gabriel Valley. So how did you get into wine? You know, I, I got out of college in Berkeley in 75, and in 76, I moved into a collective house, kind of a cooperative house, and thankfully, they would give dinner parties their friends, you know, occasionally, maybe once a month or so. And a couple of the people whom I'm still friends with, they brought wines of distinction, you know, with corks in them and with actual labels that said where the wine came from. And I never thought about wine before that, really in any serious way. Uh, I drank it, but I never thought about it. So they would have these elegant dinner parties and serve these beautiful wines and talk about the wine, talk about the food, talk about the films of the day, talk about the books that they've read. And it, it really just captivated me. And uh, this is 1976, and I started buying wine books like Hugh Johnson, big, big influence for me and for millions of other people. Robert Finnegan was a local Bay Area wine writer that was doing a newsletter. Connoisseur's Guide was just starting in those days, just just begun in 74. So I was at the right place at the right time, and I just loved it. And I started reading cookbooks for the first time and hosting dinner parties on my own, going to wine shops, buying wine, starting a small wine collection, going to wine tastings whenever I could. Uh, this is the mid-70s. Wine in California had just kind of taken off. It was at the birth of where it's become today. In the 60s, it was starting, but it really started to emerge. New wineries were opening every year in Northern California in the 1970s. The Southern Central Coast, Santa Barbara, had not really started yet, but yeah, so it was a great time. Wine was still fairly affordable. If you were really diligent about shopping, you could find some really, really collectible wines for under $20. Uh, I worked for a really cool, very eccentric, small wine shop. The owner was George Linton. George Linton was a wine guy. He was a veterinarian, day job, but he was a wine lover. 
He immigrated from Hungary during the war years to London, became a veterinary doctor, moved to the Bay Area, and he was a wine lover. And he had this shop that was in the basement in Berkeley below a Greek folk dancing kind of like a community center for all the Greek people that lived in the East Bay, Berkeley, Oakland area. This wine shop was only open from noon to three on Saturday. So all these wine collectors would come and just flood this place. It's called Wine Taster Imports. And that was a great experience because I was around wine. I was helping people select wines and take their money and that kind of thing. And um, George was a consummate wine lover, and he'd been collecting wine for decades. And he would go to Europe with a, a wad of cash, put together a container of wines. In those days, again, going back in time, you got to kind of be a little sympathetic. In those days, wineries were broke. He'd show up, he'd say, I would, I'll buy 25 cases of your Pouille Fousse for 50 bucks a case, put it on this sh truck, ship it to this port, and he gave them cash for it, and he'd get in his car and drive away. They were very delighted. He was very delighted. So we'd get this wine, this landed wine, into the port of Oakland, put it in the shop, and it was a beautiful 10-year-old bottle of Pouille Fousse for six bucks. It was a good deal for everybody. Yeah. Anyway, that was my early experience in wine. So then I'm, you know, kind of messing around. I'm, I'm a graduate of UC Berkeley, but I don't have any kind of career goals in my mid-20s. What did you think you were going to end up doing? You know, I went to school in biology, but I really had no fervent interest in working in the life sciences. Nothing came along that really was an opportunity. There were a lot of boring jobs, you know, but nothing that really made me feel that I wanted to work in the field. But fortunately, that was very um, fortuitous, serendipitous, great, in that a couple of years later, 1978, I kind of thought I might want to go into the field of winemaking. Being that I was very mechanical in my aptitude, I was wanted to live in the country, work with my hands. I loved wine, and I, the only thing that I really felt passionate about was wine and food. And I felt, well, put them all together, winemaking. So I applied to graduate school, didn't get in to UC Davis, decided to instead just do concurrent work. And so I took all the courses that they offered at that time, except for microbiology. But did you know a winemaker at that time? I mean, naturally. No, no. You know, my, my only uh, contacts were with people in the wine trade, but nobody in wine production. So I knew nothing about what to expect, but I, I read a lot of books and I was very romantically taken by the lifestyle of people making wine as farmers. That really appealed to me. So yeah, it was a leap of faith. And then I, I met my future wife, got married in 1980, went back to school, actually in 1979, but to UC Davis just to audit the courses, which I did, and spent a couple of years at UC Davis kind of commuting back and forth between Oakland and, and Davis, California. Must have been an interesting time to be there. Yeah. Davis was kind of, in terms of the enology and viticulture departments, the faculty was in a state of transition. There were the old faculty members that were really focused on production wines from the Central Valley because Gallo was a big sponsor. And, got, and it made sense because the vast majority of California wine was Central Valley wine. Coastal wine was a very small percentage, yet 
everything was changing. So right at that time, late 70s, early 80s, the wines made from Napa Valley, Sonoma, Sonoma County, the Central Coast area, all these places that are where the premium wines are made today, it was shifting away from the Central Valley. Central Valley wines were viewed as just commodity wines, which they are. And the faculty members that were there, the older faculty members, they, they were at retirement age. So it was at a time of transition. All the new faculty were more fine wine oriented. So that's when yeah. kind of like Bolton was coming on. And yeah. yeah, Roger Bolton was a major force at that time. Extremely well-educated, extremely smart, a real powerhouse in terms of his presence on the faculty. And he was one of the very first to come on of that new generation at Davis at that time. This is uh, 1979, 1980 on campus. Um, it was really those dinners. And I was raised in the suburbs, you know, and my parents were very middle class. We, we never had fine wine dinners that, you know, have become just automatic today for me. But it was those dinners that we had in living in that house in Berkeley. That was a start. From the beginning, it had a cultural tie for you. Like it was a part oh, yeah. of a social, yeah. social ability. Yeah. Yeah. The, the bringing together of friends around great food and wine was such a great thing to do. I mean, it was, it, everything about it was interesting and pleasurable. Yeah. It just pushed every button in my head. <laughs> so in a sense, you kind of wanted to make your own homebrew, but you ended up making it on somewhat of a big scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did start out. I did, there was a company in Berkeley called Wine for the People, which is a home winemaking store. And I, my very first wine was a total disaster. I, I, I signed up to make some Cabernet in 1977, uh, a severe drought year where the grape supply was very limited. So the, the grapes that were for sale were from Stag Sleep in Napa Valley from the famous Nathan Fay Vineyard. I said, yeah, I'll buy, I'll buy 500 pounds of this, you know, which is what they did. They sold grapes. So I, I go to get my grapes, and the guy behind the counter said, I'm sorry, we don't have them. But we have a substitute. We have Cabernet grapes from a place called Clarksburg in the Sacramento Delta, which is, you couldn't imagine a more ill-suited variety for a spot in the entire world. Uh, Cabernet grown on deep alluvial soils in a very cool, fog-prone delta area of California. Anyway, so I... (laughs) Not knowing what to do, I said, okay. Oh, the famous Clarksburg ABA. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. So I made this wine in a, you know, like a couple trash cans, and um, it was so god-awful. Couldn't drink it. But did you ever meet Nathan Fay, though? Oh, yeah. I met Nathan Fay at Davis. He came once to uh, talk about his vineyard, his history, his uh, kind of a second career that he had in, in growing wine grapes. Very nice man. Very gentlemanly, very soft-spoken, very much a pioneer. He was the first guy to plant serious acreage in that part of Napa Valley that everyone thought was too cold to plant grapes, so they never did it. So he came in and did it, and it spawned a whole famous corridor of wineries and vineyards in Napa Valley. But you didn't get a chance to work with those grapes? No. So... uh, (laughs) 
So then my, the second wine that I made at Davis, part of the enology class, you know, like the basic enology class is you go into the lab and you make a carboy, a five gallon carboy of wine. So the whole idea is to learn and see what happens, you know. And so they gave me a uh, carboy of French columbar juice that was intentionally, I believe, intentionally sulfured with elemental sulfur, like dusting sulfur that you use to combat mildew. So, you know, I put a little bit of yeast in this thing, put a fermentation lock on it, went home for the weekend. <laughs> Next week, we, we gather together. So everyone has to taste their wines, right? So I'm the first person that is asked to present the wine to the class, class of about a dozen, a dozen students. And this wine just reeks of hydrogen sulfide. I mean, you can smell it like two miles away. Like rotten eggs. Ooh, yeah. It was really reductive? Yeah. 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 That's hydrogen sulfide. H2S, they call it. So I was thinking, boy, I'm not sure about this winemaking thing. <laughs> yeah, this isn't an auspicious. First, uh, first I make I make a Cabernet you can't drink, and then I make a <laughs> French Colombard you can't drink either. So those are my first two wines. Yeah, but you got kind of a lucky break in that you got a job right away that you've yeah. had continuously since then. Yeah. So in the summer of '81, I left Davis. I'd done all the work, and I went looking for a job. This is August. July and August. So I'm looking around at various job openings. You know, the usual entry thing is either a cellar worker or an assistant winemaker or something like that. Maybe actually enologist, but usually those two. And the guy at Mount Eden who was there, uh, Fred Peterson, hired me as an assistant winemaker. $1,000 a month with a house. (laughs) We got to live on a property. I got to live on the property, yeah. So it wasn't too bad, but it was... It was pretty rough going. Mount Eden in those days was, uh, it's always been humble, but it was super humble then. You know, it was like everything was done with your forearms, no forklift, no tractors of any substance, no tractor implements. Yeah, it was, it was a very, very humble winery. And part of that was due to the fact that the shareholders at the time were not getting along with each other. So nobody wanted to invest in the winery. The winery made brilliant wine, but... Not much of it. And the winery needed some capital. It needed some stability. And um, that wasn't happening with the environment among the shareholders at that time. That It's all been ancient history at this point, but that was where it was in 81. And it had been through a kind of a series of winemakers right before you. Yeah. So in the 70s, it started off with the Graff brothers, along with Dr. Ed Vuskevitz, a shareholder. And then uh, by 74, so after the first, so the 72 and three vintages were the Graff brothers and Dr. Ed. So like Dick Graff and Richard. Dick Graff and Peter Graff. From uh, Shalone. Dick was the founder of Shalone, and Peter was his brother. And Peter worked in wine alongside Dick. And then by 74, they hired Mary Edwards, who went on to become very famous in Sonoma County. She was there for only three years, 74, five, and six vintages. And then they hired person from UC Davis, but it was his first job, Bill Anderson. So similar to to Mary Edwards, it was her first job out of Davis. This was also Bill's. He was there only for two years, 77 and 78. And then in 79, they had a a winemaker who was was only there for about six months, Rick White. And then Fred Peterson, my boss, was hired to be a viticulturist. And then when they got rid of Rick, he became the de facto winemaker and then uh, he went through the 80 vintage with that, with just some casual help. And then 
in 81, they hired me to help Fred in the wine cellar, do the topping, the racking, help with the bottling, do vineyard work also, just whatever was needed, but kind of primarily focus on the wine cellar, which I was very happy to do. And um, my wife was very amenable to living on the property, which I was very surprised because it was a little bit primitive. And then way up there. Yeah, way up a 2.2-mile dirt road. But she was in love with it. She loved the romance of the the isolation and the the beauty of it. So that was pivotal in our success there, and that she really embraced my job at Mount Eden. You know, she was doing uh, hand weaving at that time. She had a small business as a hand weaver and doing uh, aerobics instruction. <laughs> yeah, and then soon after I got there, like 15 months after I got there. My boss, Fred, decided to move on. He was hired by Bill Hambricht, who was a big wine lover in the Bay Area, big financier, to plant a vineyard in Healdsburg. So Fred signed on for that. That opened the door for me. I petitioned to the the board of directors to hire me as a winemaker, which they did. And they hired my wife to kind of direct the sales and business administration, the accounting of the company. So that, that worked out really well. That was in... December of 82. So I was only there for a brief time before they, they elevated me to the position of, of authority. Which is kind of incredible when yeah. you think about it. If it wasn't for the fact that the company was in kind of, you know, kind of dire straits, it probably never would have happened. It was very much a stroke of good luck. My own interest in wine was very, very high. But, you know, I know so many people that are great winemakers, great wine lovers, that have not had the recognition that I've had uh, just because of fate. You know, it just, you know, I, I, so I feel very lucky in many ways being at somewhat of a high profile property where I am. Uh, the, th- the thing about Mount Eden that has always been the case for me, always been, never, never, ever doubted this, is the fact that the potential of making really profound California wine, like world class that could be compared to the best examples of its type around the world, that's world-class, is there every year. And the forefathers of the property really believed that same idea that when they put it into place. I mean, Paul Masson. Right. So going back in the, into the history of that mountaintop, you know, it's very isolated. It's all by itself. There's no other vineyards around it. It's surrounded by forest. And it's a 2.2-mile dirt road that leads to the top of the place. And it was started by an eccentric man, Martin Ray. Martin Ray grew up in the town below us, which is called Saratoga, at a time when Saratoga and San Jose, the Santa Clara Valley, Silicon Valley now called, was totally agricultural. Nobody lived there. It was all a bunch of farmers. So Martin Ray's growing up. He's the son of a teetotaler. His father's a minister. And he's hiking around the hills in Saratoga, and he discovers Paul Masson in his vineyard which is the vineyard right next door to us. Paul Masson immigrates back in the 1880s, back when California wine is really just beginning to be commercially, you know, a small commercial industry in California. And he marries the French family that owned Almondon Winery and Vineyards, Charles Lefranc family. He marries his daughter and is immediately thrust into this world of wine, which is what he wanted. And then two weeks after he marries, his father-in-law, Charles Lefranc, dies in a horse and buggy accident. And 
then he's thrust even further into the ownership and management of Almondon Winery and Vineyards, which was a quite large operation, one of the biggest in California at the time. And then, about a decade later, he decides to plant his own vineyard, his own winery, and call it Palmasan. He wanted to be independent of the family business. Maybe he had a conflict with his brother-in-law. Who knows? But he also wanted to make, like, sparkling wine, right? Yeah, he wanted to make sparkling wine. Why? Being a Burgundian, maybe he loved Cremant de Bourgogne. I don't know. <laughs> you never know. Everyone's taste. Um, so he proceeds to buy this land right next to us, 573 acres, all mountainous, undeveloped, and he plants it to these cuttings, to these scions, this budwood that he procures from his homeland in Burgundy around 1900, starts his fairly large vineyard. This is a vineyard for the Santa Cruz Mountains, for the topography of our mountain range. This is one big contiguous vineyard, which is very, very rare. So the property itself was appealing to him, I think, because it was one big piece of plantable ground. Is that why he went there? I mean, I think that, it might have been, yeah, because yeah. it was probably available and because having your vineyard all together is much better than having it spread apart which is what we have at Mount Eden. So Palmasan goes at it, makes sparkling wine, you know, gets in touch with a lot of Hollywood types to promote his wine, is very successful, and, you know, has really one of the best uh, Pinot Noir vineyards, probably the biggest Pinot Noir vineyard in California for decades. I think he had 30 acres of Pinot Noir at its height, and that was the biggest Pinot Noir vineyard in probably until 1970 in California. Because at that time, I mean, when he's planning it, at that time California Pinot Noir was not, not was not a big deal, or even varietal wine. Right? Chardonnay was not a big deal, and varietal wines were not a big deal. Nobody labeled their wines according to the grape variety. Everything was labeled as a blend: Chablis, Burgundy, Claret, Sauterne, Cherry. And he held on through prohibition. Yeah, he was a Catholic, you know, as Frenchmen always are, and he um, he was a very astute businessman. He was able to get contracts with the church. But, you know, prohibition, if you really delve into the, the details of prohibition, if you were smart and ambitious, you could sell wine. You couldn't do it legally, but you could do it for cash, you know, and people did. You know, they had vineyards, they had a winery, right? I mean, you could make wine, but you couldn't sell it. But you could illegally, and they did. So Palmasan, not, you know, he wasn't riding high like he was before Prohibition, but he was still, you know, existing. So Prohibition ends in uh, the 1934, and 1936, Paul decides to sell Palmasan. He's getting older, doesn't have a secession plan in place with his family. So in the meantime, Martin Ray, this little kid that he met growing up, has now grown up went away to college, up to Washington, came back to the Bay Area, became a stockbroker. And uh, in his 30s, Martin Ray has some kind of a mental breakdown and uh, has to stop working. He decides while he's recovering to make a life change and get out of the business of stocks and bonds and to get into the wine business. Now, you have to think back how what the decision that was in that the wine business was in such a shambles after prohibition. I mean, there was no market, 
the, the overall quality for wine had just taken a huge dive. And for him to say, I want to be, I want to get into this business as a neophyte was a leap of faith that I can't imagine today. But it was almost like moving away from everything he'd come from. Could have been just a cathartic change, you know, that he felt he needed to make for his own health. So he does. He buys Palmasan from Paul. In the meantime, Paul is talking to, negotiating with Martin, and he's suggesting to Martin that instead of, of buying his property, instead he start from scratch and go to the property right next door to us, to the north, which is now where we are, Mount Eden. Buy that, plant it, make wine, go for it. Unusual, because it's the same basic soil type. It's kind of a U-shaped mountain. We're on the northern half of the U, which is about 2,000 feet. Palmasan's on the southern half of the U, which is about 1,200 feet. But the same basic soils, the same geology is this mountain, this Mount Eden. But Mount Eden is quite a bit higher up then. It's higher up, yeah. So Martin Ray never forgot that suggestion. He wasn't ready at that time because he didn't know anything about how to run a wine business or how to plant a vineyard or whatever. So, but he never forgot that. Uh, he did buy Palmasan. He only owned it for a brief time from 36 to 42. Sold it to Seagram's, the whiskey house in Canada. And the next year decided to do what Paul suggested to plant this place. And he plants, so he, he starts at Mount Eden in, in 43, planting Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. First harvest, I believe, was 46. And he's off and running. Uh, the name of the property, or the name of the wine, Martin Ray, his name. And for a while, he was kind of successful. Yeah, during the 40s and the 50s, he was on fire. He did so many things that were so way, way ahead of his time. He made profound wine. Not always great, but they were very, you couldn't ignore them. They definitely had a signature about them. He charged huge prices. I mean, cult wine prices in an era when no one did that. He was the only one to charge cult wine prices. He made wine futures, bottled all of his wines, champagnes, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, in champagne bottles, put them in mahogany boxes, nailed them shut. He would do some pretty unusual things like bottle say, a Cabernet vintage, lay it down. A couple of years later, sell a case and decant. <laughs> decant the bottle into another bottle. Some unusual practices, but yeah, he was, and never made much. Always kept it like under a thousand cases. Given the size of the cellar that he worked in and the acreage that he farmed, I could see how big his production was. It was under a thousand cases total every year. Lived, lived among the vines. The house he built for himself is now my house. It's livable. So he, he made some wines in the 40s and 50s that were just, to this day, amazing wines. But as he got older, in the 1960s, his first wife had passed away from lung cancer. So his second wife, whom he married soon after, an old friend from college, he married her. And he had this brilliant idea, which was his downfall, to take on investors, which he did in the 1960s. Uh, talking to his second wife, his, her name is Eleanor, like my wife, in usual. Um, if his first wife was still alive, she would have dissuaded him 
because she knew how intolerant he would be of anybody involved in his business, which he was. But his second wife didn't have the same kind of power of persuasion to convince him not to do it. So he did it, but it was it eventually came back to take him out. So during the 60s, these wealthy wine lovers would pay to this kind of this investment every month. He was going to build them a house and a vineyard that they would use for their own purposes, which he did. But in the meantime, he was so kind of secretive about his business and about his practices and his failures and successes uh, that these partners just got fed up. And they said, you know, we want out. This is not working. You, you obviously can't work with other people in this business, which is true. And they took him to court because he, he wouldn't budge. And the judge said, pay him back. In the summer of 72, he failed to pay him back and they took it over. So they got in there kind of late, made the 72 Pinot Noir, which was actually a very nice wine. <laughs> they call it St. Vincent's wine, patron saint of wine. And um, he left. He moved into the house that Martin built for these investors, but never used. Further down the hill. Yeah, about maybe a quarter of the way down the hill. So kind of a kind of a sad story, you know, to a guy who is so visionary, so important in a in a weird but important way. You know, he the fine wine part of the wine business is so small, five percent. But it's so important because without, without fine wine, wine would not be where it is. It's fine wine that creates the, the world of greatness, the aspirations of people talking about wine the way they do, you know, the, the, the whole, you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of a, a bit of a, a conundrum how such a small percentage of it is. And that Martin Ray was always interested in that, that slim top end of that five percent of the top of what great wine is that was his aspiration his entire life at a time when in california winemakers california wine in general wasn't really focused on that you know it wasn't really that wasn't the why they were in it and so the vine material was sourced from paul masson so it was so it was those burgundy cuttings the good friends of the masson family back in france were the negociants louis latour so it's quite logical that the cuttings that they arduously took back on a boat from France to California were taken from Courtaume, the white and the red, the Grancet and the Charlemagne. Um, it's logical, you know, you want to go to your very best vineyard to get your plant material, because that's a proven, you know, it does make great wine, you know, at least in the world that they lived in. The thing of heat treatment and now we'll call meristem culture, which is the same, the same goal, which is to outrun the virus, the inherent viruses, leaf roll viruses. That wasn't around then. That, I'm not sure when that started, but my guess is sometime in the 1960s when they started to take budwood from whatever and what they call kind of clean it up or you know, remove the inherent leaf roll viruses out of the wood. And so when you get there, you're there in 81, and really it hasn't been that long since Martin Ray was there. Martin Ray died in 76. I never met him. And I hung out with his widow, Eleanor, a lot, because she lived until 2000. So she lived almost 20 years while I lived there. So we, we became good friends. But um, 
Martin, I never knew. No. But a lot of times you're using the the same limited equipment and the vine material that he planted. Yeah. Yeah. He was, you know, there's an old kind of a little saying that I, I oftentimes give to uh, visitors. <clears throat> Palmason inspired Mount Eden. Martin Ray built Mount Eden. And Mount Eden perfected Mount Eden. That's, that's the way I see it, is that triad. Like the amount of time of just working that parcel. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the parcel like? Well, they're spread out among 320 acres of land encompassing this mountain. It's about seven different vineyards. At the top of the mountain are all of our Pinot Noir and Chardonnay vineyards that have all been replanted from the original vines. So starting in the decade of the 1990s, I had the time and the money and the, the water to replant successively every couple of years all of the upper vineyards, which have now been done. And then um, the lower vineyards are primarily Cabernet Sauvignon that were planted by my predecessor and somewhat by me in the 19, 1980 to 84, which kind of formed the basis of our Cabernet Sauvignon. So it's lower down. It's about 1,600 feet, and it's a little bit warmer in, in temperature, which is, makes the wine a little easier to ripen. Cabernet is a difficult grape to ripen in our cool climate. So uh, having that lower vineyard also in the lee of the mountain. But it's about seven different vineyards kind of spread out among a whole big mountain with all these deer fences and deer gates and you know complexity of soils and slopes and drainage. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a labyrinth. So different exposures. Yeah, we have pretty much every exposure we have a lot of easterly, which is great. East is, um, in California at least, east is sees morning sun and not afternoon sun. So the sun it sees is cooler and uh, you don't have to worry about that kind of that afternoon heat that can be problematic in terms of ripening at the end. You know, it can over-ripen the fruit. But we do have western exposures too. We have, we have everything, every aspect of the compass. <laughs> And it's on shale. It's Franciscan shale. Shale is the primary, the primary soil type, yeah. A Franciscan shale. Which is kind of related to clay. Well, it's a sedimentary formation. It's uh, not as dense as clay. It's more friable than clay. It cracks like Parmesan cheese. Uh, it drains really well. Uh, wine grapes are very forgiving, but what they don't like is soils that don't drain. If you have a bottomland where the, they retain a lot of water, they really don't like that. But other than that, they almost grow anywhere. That's why wine is grown all over the world, you know, everywhere but Antarctica. So if you were to define a Santa Cruz Mountains character, aside from Mount Eden, yeah. what would that be for wine? Generally speaking, the wines have good concentration because of mountain conditions, poor soils, not a lot of water, cool weather. The crops are quite small. Um, good acidities. Across the board, you can certainly generalize about acidities. They're always, they're not necessarily high, but we never make a wine that's low in acidity. I've never seen that. You know, the tannic reds can be pretty tannic typically. So the wines are, the red wines are maybe more structured than other places of California. Kind of classically shaped, you know. It's, it's difficult because it's such a big appellation. You know, it's 70 miles from end to end, 409,000 acres of land, of which only 1,500 acres are in cultivation. So it's a pretty small 
community of vineyards, but a large area of space. And so all the wineries are really spread out. You know, if you wanted to visit all like 70 wineries in the Santa Cruz Mountains, it would take you a long time, over a week. And you think that the, the reason that there's not more vineyards planted within that bigger space is just that there's so much demand for real estate from people who want to build there in other ways? I think the primary limiting factor is topography. There's so little plantable ground. It, the mountain range is the first range of mountains coming off of the coast. And from a geologic point of view, they're very young. And because of that youth, they're very steep. You could buy 100 acres and maybe plant 10. You know, it's that kind of ratio that is the, the major limiting factor to uh, vineyards. An aspect of the Santa Cruz Mountains that is kind of common and that the vineyards are very small. They're surrounded by forest, either oak madrone or conifer or scrub forests that um, can help with certain kind of a slight signature, you know, something to do with pollination maybe, you know, some kind of, kind of you know, this, the aromatics that come from the forest can kind of waft into the vineyard. So when you got there, what was the condition of the vines that Martin Ray had planted originally? Because they were still around at that time. Yeah. So the young vines that Fred had planted were just in their development phase. So there was um, only old vines to work with. The old vines, uh, extremely variable. They were planted on a 10 by 10 grid. So that's only 430 vines per acre, assuming they're all alive, <laughs> which is a big assumption. Now we plant 2,000 vines per acre. So it's five times more vines per acre than they did then. The style of viticulture is what contributed to our old vine quality in that, I've never seen it before, it's, a, it's not a head train vine. It's a trunk, like a four foot or so trunk alongside a redwood stake. On that trunk are two bud spurs. And then there's a basket cane brought from some point on the vine kind of in a kind of a semicircle, and then the end of the cane is tied to the redwood stake. So it's called basket pruning. So the canes are where most of the fruit is born, not the spurs. But the most significant part of that system is the fact that the fruit is born vertically from about shin height up to about chest height, right? Along this vertical axis, which is the direct opposite of the way viticulture is done almost anywhere else in the world that I know of, where it's horizontal. Because, you know, plants have apical dominance, which means that the higher the meristems are on the plant, the more auxins they get. And so at harvest time, working with these older vines, you had really immature fruit, super high in acid, very turgid at the bottom, and super ripe fruit, almost gone because of the birds at the top, and then everything in between. So there's, a, there's something to be said for that complexity that results from the heterogeneity of that mixture of ripeness. But, you know, it was a challenge. Those old vines were old, and a lot of them were dead. And again, because of the lack of kind of shareholder interest in helping the, the winery from a financial point of view. You know, nobody wanted to spend a lot of money on replanting. So it took a while for us to kind of get around to that. 
know, until, until I don't want to beat my horn too much, but until I got there, no one really kind of committed themselves. And I kind of, when I started there, I saw myself as working there for the rest of my life. And it's made a difference. I've been there for 35 years, uh, longer than Martin Ray. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of my life's work. It's where I live. It's where I spend all my time. But yeah, the old vines were a challenge. They were, it's just so 180 degrees in terms of principle away from the convention. Yeah, but that was Martin Ray. <laughs> Martin Ray was not conventional in any sense of the word. Did you ever try some of the wines that he made? Yeah, I've, I've had the wines from the 40s and 50s, especially the 50s. Uh, they were around, you can occasionally see them if some collector passes away or, you know, whatever. But um, remarkably good. Yeah, 56 Pinot Noir, 52 Pinot Noir, 53 Chardonnay, 54 Chardonnay, 58 Pinot Noir. Yeah, really. Just amazing. I mean, so good that, you know, they just stick in your... When you have great wine like that, that's so old, you never forget it. No matter how old you get, you never forget those experiences. So did it have underripe and overripe characters in the same wine? Not really. But the Cabernet is a different story. A Cabernet, because of the nature of pyrazines, is unforgiving. You know, if you harvest you know, 1% of your Cabernet that's underripe as a percentage, the wine turns out 100% underripe. <laughs> that herbaceous, obnoxious, green, underdeveloped nature of Cabernet Sauvignon. So you, with Cabernet, it doesn't work. That vertical style, and it took us a long time to realize that it doesn't work, and it doesn't. But we learned why do you think that they had Chardonnay, Pinot, and Cab all in the same, I mean, obviously it's a little bit different elevation, but same vineyard area? Because that's unusual. I'm not sure they grew Cabernet under the Palmasan brand when Martin owned it. The records are kind of hard to come by. So I've never thought about looking into that, but I could. But, you know, Cabernet is Cabernet. You know, it's a very popular wine, very serious wine. Uh, Martin Ray was very good friends with a local winemaker, Emmett Rixford, who founded and made La Cuesta, which is a Cabernet wine from Woodside, a little bit north of Mount Eden in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Very serious man. He wrote a book on winemaking, Emmett Rixford, very famous book on back in the 1880s, back at a time when that was like the first book about winemaking that was ever written in California. And uh, he bought grapes when he first started Martin Ray in the 40s. He bought grapes from Emmett, from actually from his sons. At that point, Emmett was dead, but his sons had grapes because they were, they were really not in, into the wine thing too much, so they were selling fruit. And he made some brilliant wines, you know, again, bottled in champagne bottles, <laughs> Cabernet. And so he had success, but when he decided to plant his own Cabernet grapes, you know, he didn't understand this, the shading factor. So these vines, given the style that they were trained in, they shaded the fruit. When you grow Cabernet Sauvignon in the absence of sunlight, it doesn't develop. It, these pyrazines, this, this herbaceous quality that is so kind of obnoxious is, is produced in abundance. So his, his estate Cabernets, but his Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, brilliant in the 50s, 40s and 50s. 
what do you think the methodology there was? Like, was he using a whole cluster on the Pinot or? No, no, I don't think so. I don't really know. You know, he didn't write anything down and there's no records I can access. He didn't use refrigeration because that really wasn't around then. He didn't use stainless steel tanks because that wasn't really around then. You know, his, his era was before the advent of modern winemaking. You know, no, no analysis. I'm sure he had a buleometer to check the sugar levels, but, you know, no pH meter, no titration of acidity, no VA still, none of the common tools, you know, malactic uh, chromatography, none of the common tools that we have today that, you know, very basic stuff that you use to make sure the wine's on track. That didn't exist. You, the, the fact of having a wine lab, having any, any kind of enological kind of basis for your wine that did not exist. You know, wine was, it was different. You know, it was, it was made intuitively. But he was using barrels? Yeah. Barrels in his era were hard to come by. So he had a connection, again, with Louis Latour, Biamasson, and they were able to ship some barrels over. Not a lot of new ones, but he did have small cooperage. And it was a limited facility when you get there in 81. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very, yeah, it was, yeah, it, just the fact that there was no forklift, that was a big deal. Yeah, everything was done by hand. The wine hose we had at that time was uh, this three-quarter inch Tigon tubing that in order to stop the flow of the wine, I'd crimp it. <laughs> so the first thing I did was I bought some some real wine hose, you know, with some racking wands and some, you know. I mean, I didn't know, but I, I looked at this and I'm saying, there's got to be a better way to do it than <laughs> crimping Tigon tubing. <laughs> and then had Martin Ray dry farmed? Well, yeah. Um, drip irrigation did not come into existence in California until 1976. It was invented by the Israelis in the desert agriculture that they had. Great invention. Changed the world of viticulture. Drip irrigation. Prior to that, when you planted a vineyard, the only way to establish the vineyard was to hand water. So you had to dig a basin around the vine and, you know, bring in a, some kind of tank of water and, you know, use buckets, bucket the water into, into the basin. And uh, a lot of work. You know, now we string a wire when we plant, string a drip hose, plug in emitters underneath the vine, hook up the main water, turn on a valve, and it's all done automatically. That has been a huge difference. So yeah, Martin Ray dry farmed, as did everybody. Nobody irrigated, unless you were maybe on a flat piece of ground in a valley, and you had sprinklers, you know, that sprinkled, that, that would irrigate the vineyard in a, in a broadcast way. And that also served for frost protection in a valley. And you dry farm today. Yeah, so after the vineyard is established, so about year three, the first crop arrives. And then by year five, the vineyard is pretty much formed. You know, the, every plant, with a few exceptions, are fully formed. And then no more water. I'll irrigate in the early years up until the point at which plants are done. But I want to, you know, establish a strong, strong root system in the beginning. So before we have a crop, like year one and year two, I'll irrigate quite a bit. That's 
what I've found to be successful is that just like a baby, you know, you want to give a baby everything it needs and then kind of wean it off, off of the abundance a little bit, you know, as they grow up. So I feel like you've changed your methodology a little bit over time. And as the grapes have changed, the raw materials you were working with. Oh, yeah. So in terms of a grape like Pinot Noir, yeah. what were the methodology changes over time? And why did you make the changes? So the beginning, when I first got to Mount Eden in 81, we had an old Amos Crusher. Amos was a German manufacturer, which um, was very unusual. It was, it was a small machine, adequate for our production level, but it would flail the grapes and um, we had a destemmer screen that we would take out, so the grapes would just get crushed through the rollers with the stems. So all the all the grapes were crushed with the stems, and it resulted in a wine that was very very stemmy. That and that, that stemminess never really morphed into greatness. It was stemmy in its youth, hard and stemmy in its youth, hard and stemmy in its old age. And I didn't like it. I didn't feel it was, you know, fulfill the number one purpose of wine, which is to give pleasure. So I said, no more stems. That was the first major thing that I did. So we put the stemmer back in. They were still crushed, but the stems were removed. And then uh, I started slowly experimenting with whole cluster. 85 was probably the first big example of that, where the 100% of the vintage was. That was a great vintage. That was probably the very best Pinot Noir I've ever made in my life. And I didn't have total confidence in doing that whole cluster process. Again, it was more of an experiment that year, 85, one of a kind. So I, I kept on doing the destemming, crushing and destemming. And then in um, around 2004, I hooked up with a, a Burgundy group in the Bay Area, started tasting on a regular basis all these really, really old and sometimes prestigious red burgundies and these guys collectors were always trying to get me to go back into the whole cluster uh, mode mode so i said okay i'll try it so in 2006 many years after i started i started experimenting with whole cluster which was to me taking a certain portion of the of the harvest and foot stomping it a little bit with the stems putting that in the bottom of the fermenter topping it off with destemmed fruit and letting it go the thing about whole cluster which is whole berries along with stems, is you add a complexity to the wine, um, slightly herbaceous, slightly mysterious, slightly tannic, and there's a, just an added element that makes the wine a little deeper, not straightforward fruit. 100% destemmed Pinot Noir is just straightforward fruit. Wine with a certain percentage of whole cluster has an added dimension that um, is uh, pretty obvious side by side. And I'm, I'm enjoying that more and more. I, I think I'm making my Pinot Noir more serious, more complex, better. That's the thing that's, in my evolution as a winemaker with Pinot Noir, I went from our history before I got there of crushed with stems to crushed with no stems to whole cluster at this point. Not 100%. Anywhere from 30 to 35% for the estate wine. So you ferment and steal for the Pinot. Yeah. The Pinot Noir goes into a tank. It's not inoculated. It just goes natural. But that was a learning curve too, right? Like you... 
Yeah, I didn't start that until um, about the mid-2000s, but I'm kind of committed now to doing that. What was the rationale there? I mean, why did you make the choice to go now, up? Pinot Noir ferments so quickly already. I, I was thinking, why am I adding yeast? If it ferments so quickly already, why bother with adding yeast? It doesn't make any sense. So I didn't, and it fermented fine. It fermented without any problems. Everything was good. And that's true of all my wines, you know, they, they all ferment well on nat natural yeast. And so it's, it goes into a tank, slightly chilled. Chillers may be turned on for a couple of days, turned off. The wine slightly warms. It's being pumped over all this time, like three times a day. And then fermentation starts about a couple days later. So now it's been in the tank for about four days. It goes all the way to dryness, pressed off that, now I've been in the tank about 14 days, about 10 days total in that fermentative state. And because of the whole cluster, there's whole berries that have not been broken, still in the, in the mix. And they have a little bit of fermentable sugar in them. So when, they're pressed, when the wine is pressed off, the sugar kind of bounces up. So we put that into a tank, let it resolve the fermentation. And then that kickstarts the malolactic. It goes into barrel. A month or two later, the malolactics are finished, SO2, and we're done. It's a, it's a very, a Pinot Noir is not a hard wine to make. It's a hard wine to grow, but not a hard wine to make. It's easy to make, but difficult to grow well. But you used to do punch downs, right? Yeah, we punched down until we bought the other winery in 2007. So starting with the 2008 vintage, all the red wine fermentations are now pumped over. They're not punched down. And then a month or two for mallow, that means you're not, you're no. not. Because of that sugar bump that occurs after pressing, that really helps the malolactic to occur naturally, uh, and it does. So the mallows are never, ever a problem with our red wines. They just go. So then what about the Chardonnay? Yeah, so Chardonnay is harvested block by block. It takes us about eight days to harvest our Chardonnay vineyards. And we press the same day into a tank, chill the juice, settle the juice, Rack the juice off of its settlings, start the fermentation, put it in barrels. It goes into the barrel, you know, when it's just begun fermentation and ferments on the relative warm side in these French oak barrels. Same kind of barrel regime, Sarougue and Francois and Atelier, center of France, that the Pinot Noir receives. And then ferment it, let the malolactic go after that. 100% mal. 100% mal, yeah. And then uh, bottle it in July. So it receives about 10 months in the barrel. And you do the mallow because you don't want to filter? I do the mallow because it's our house style. We've always done it. I do the mallow because I don't have to filter the wine very strenuously. So the wine preserves its inherent aromas, textures. And I like that there's a little more complexity that I think occurs when the Chardonnay is mallow. You know, Non-mallow Chardonnay is great, you know, but for me... Uh, it's who we are. We've always done it, you know. We're, this is our what people expect out of us. And what about stirring? I don't stir too much. I st I'll stir if I have a kind of a recalcitrant mallow that I want to encourage. But in general, um, stirring to me is kind of affectatious in a way. It's giving the wine, you know, added flavor and aroma that I don't think it's somewhat detractive. I think from the what comes out of the vineyard. And if I'm trying to capture the Chardonnay from Mount Eden, adding more than oak, it doesn't really appeal to me. 
in terms of pressing for the white, how do you handle that? I press them really, really, really hard. So I, I get as much juice as I harvest. <laughs> but I spend hours pressing Chardonnay. It's a hard wine to press. It doesn't come out very easily. But I'm a firm believer in not throwing any juice away. I know in Champagne and other places in France, they, they press very lightly. But for me, pressing to the maximum is what I do. Sometimes when I taste the, the bottlings, I have the old vine material for Chardonnay from Mount Eden in them. Sometimes I get the sense of like a shot berry character because it's the same kind of character I get in something like Stony Hill, which is like yeah. that shot berry thing. Yeah. Are, are there a lot of hens and chicks in, in yeah. those old vines? Or I guess they're not, they don't exist anymore, but in the old vines of... Well, the old vines were, um, they were own-rooted. Significant. Uh, we have phylloxera. We've had phylloxera for a long time. You know, a phylloxera is a bug that you can plant a vineyard in an isolated spot and get away with it for a certain amount of time. But eventually it's going to come into your, I mean, with time, it'll find you because it, it's a, an insect that only grows on grape roots. So it's pretty specific, but it will find you <laughs> eventually. And it did. Uh, it found us. So we have it, so we have to use rootstock. So whether or not the rootstock has influenced the percentage of shot berries, I don't know. I never thought about it really. Shot berries are more a function of the weather during the bloom. If the weather is cold, below like 60 degrees, the pollen tube, you know, can't grow. And a shot berry, a shot berry basically is a flower that's been pollinated but not fertilized yeah it's, it never develops any size either do you get that kind of mouthfeel of the shot berry sometimes in those old vine bugs there is an added dimension to the old vine wine there's a, an added textural that's why old vines are so famous old vines you know give you wines of high texture and high complexity that is revered around the world uh i believe in them but i gotta wait you know <laughs> Can't force it. Uh, but I, I do think you're right. I think there's a certain, you know, but it, the wines from the really old vines of Mount Eden, really 1996 was really the last year that we harvested any kind of percentage of old vines in the mix. Do you find different harvesting times when you were working with own rooted versus now? You know, now that you have... Yeah, the whole harvest kind of timing thing has moved earlier in the calendar. Our winters are becoming less cold. Our springs are becoming less cold. Summers are still on the cool side, but the bud break and the flowering creates the scheduling for the vineyard. Those are significant occurrences, you know, in the cycle of the vine, the bud break. So it's happening earlier. So when the bud break happens and when the flowering occurs, those are two markers that create the eventual marker of harvest. And those have moved up. Now, it seems like, you know, we pick one day and we pick another and another and another day after day after day after, because it's all kind of ripe. Boom. Was back in the 80s and 90s, it seemed like it was more spread out. We'd pick maybe a couple days and then wait a week to pick the rest. You know, it's not so boom, 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 boom. So I think the climate change is manifested in that. 
that more bringing it all in. It's all there. I've learned when I'm making Chardonnay, my estate Chardonnay, uh, there's a window of time that's more narrow than I in, than I realized before. And now I'm trying to pick them really, you know, at their optimum. It's a logistics thing. I only have so many days. I, I only have so big of a crew and I can only pick so many acres of vines per day. And so I have to start early to finish on time. So it's kind of this multifactorial kind of process that I have to kind of figure out in my head that when we start harvesting. But you've kind of moved your vision of what kind of leanness I have, you wanted, right? I have. I have. I'm, I'm trying to make a wine every year that lasts for 25 years. That's my goal. I, I really want to make a wine, a Chardonnay wine that has legs. And in order to do that, pH has to be low. The acidity has to be really good, really kind of firm. And uh, the wine has to have moderate alcohol. And I, I have to make it well. Yeah, I have to make it, you know, really very fresh when it goes into the bottle. If I do all those things well, it's primarily, you know, the harvest. If I can get the harvest down, you know, well, then I'm, I feel everything else falls into place. And I feel like it's the Chardonnay that has tended to attract the most critical attention, like in terms Always of people has. praising yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, because our Chardonnay has more of a French-like style, and uh, it has a reputation for aging, and it tastes different and it's historic. You know, it has this lineage going back to the 40s, which doesn't sound very old when you compare it to Burgundy. But California Chardonnay, in terms of a specific wine, one place, one vineyard every year, estate bottled. Grow it, make it, bottle it. That's rare. That's rare. It'll become less rare in the future, <laughs> but it is rare, you know, given where we are. But you also make a, a quite good Cabernet. What's your evolution been with that? Cabernet has been a slow evolution. In the 80s, when I first got there, and I was, you know, was kind of on my own, um, I struggled. It was by far my biggest disappointment was making Cabernet. And I, it took me a long time to learn about pyrazines and about shading and about these old Martin Ray vines and how to grow them, how to prune them and how to you know, clear the middle of the canopy out to expose the fruit to the sun. But 10 years later, after I got there, it all came together. In uh, 1990, I feel like I really had learned kind of how to make this wine. Harvested a little bit later also. Kind of went through a phase in the 80s where kind of a, you might say a fad by making food wines. <laughs> Remember that? Food wines? Um, and, you know, which was picking them earlier, which, you know, it works for some things, but a Cabernet, you know, it, it needs to be complete, fully ripe, not overripe, but fully ripe. Our Cabernet vineyards are in a very cool part of the California coastline. So we have the luxury of waiting in late September, early October, of waiting for the grapes to ripen to a greater degree without gaining sugar, which is really great. You know, the, at that point, the vines are so tired that they're not really putting out a lot of photosynthesis. And so I can wait for the grapes to really mature on the vine and not worry about having excess sugar. I don't add water. I don't add acid. I don't add anything. 
SO2 is all I add. So They've never been acidified. No. They're already so tannic. If I acidified them, they'd be more so. And with the Cabernet, is that a particularly small barrier? Are you getting a lot yeah. of... small and small cluster, too. Yeah, Cabernet yields are not very good. They're le- less than two times an acre. Seems like a lot of skin to juice when you taste that wine, like in terms yeah. of... Yeah, it's pretty powerful wine. But if anything, you've taken the skin maceration of the Cabernet down over time. Huge. Yeah, when I first started, it was three weeks, which is um, a long time, I think. Yeah, you know, even making any red wine, that's a long time. When you have a, a red ferment that has not been pressed off and the alcohols are completely, you know, where they are, you know, that alcohol is a solvent for catechins, which are seed tannins. And seed tannins are very bitter. And I don't want to, I don't want a lot of bitterness. A little bit of bitterness, like hops and beer is good, but I, I don't want to make a really bitter red wine. So by pressing it off early... I'm doing two things. I'm getting it off the skins before full realization of alcohol, and that's allowing less catechins to be emitted into the wine. And then uh, secondly, probably primarily, is the uh, skin tannin and having, again, that alcohol as a solvent for skin tannin. And so by taking it off the skins before the alcohol has reached its maximum, that allows me to kind of diminish the tannin levels. I, I like tannin. But if I'm not careful, the wine can be overly tannic. pHs of a Cabernet are good. And that's one reason why you know, I can make a wine that has what is perceived as having a lot of acidity, but it doesn't. If you measure the acidity of the Cabernet, it's in the mid-4 grams, so it's quite low. But the pH is about 3.5. So that combination of low acidity and low pH creates the impression of acidity, but without the impression of hard tannins. Then how long does the Cabernet spend in wood? Two years. Racked about five times with air. Five times? With air. Wow. So Not with nitrogen, but with air. And that's probably, uh, again... uh, Softening. Yeah, softening that that skin juice tannin thing. So I I don't do any fining. No egg white or gelatin fining of the wine is done. I don't want to grow something... And then subtract it out of the wine to polish it. I want to grow it and put it in the bottle. You know, so by doing a extended harvest, by doing a short maceration, lots of racking, no fining, no filtration. I think I I'm where I want to be with making Cabernet. I, I'm really happy with all of the vintages of Cabernet, every one of them, from 1990 to the present. Very happy. The wines I tend to like the most that have the most complexity are the wines where the weather at the end is very even and relatively cool. So the grapes are hanging. They're almost there. They're just on the cusp. They're just gracefully aging on the vine, right? Nothing much is happening sugar-wise. They're changing at a glacial pace. Those are the years, yeah, that I, like, five, six, and seven in Cabernet, for instance. Those were the years that 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 happened. Ten, eleven, twelve, same thing. Very slow finish. You know, the old maxim in wine growing, the spring is the yield, and the fall is the quality. That's the case. 
it's an old an old saying, but it rings true. But in a case where you're over two miles up a dirt road and you have issues with staffing it for harvest time, it must be nice to have the extra time to harvest, basically, because it's a cool yeah, yeah. Having having issues with labor or only getting in California, the bulk of the labor in, in wine is Mexican labor, and in Mexico, many things have happened. Uh, birth rates have fallen, immigration rates have fallen, cost of illegally crossing has risen dramatically. Uh, the economy of Mexico has improved. All these factors have coalesced into this thing where the wine industry, heavily dependent on Mexican labor, is going to find it more and more difficult to do what they do. Yeah. Because all the base labor is Mexican. And do you have any other things that become a problem at that kind of elevation? Are there other issues? Well, the, the biggest problem is erosion. Gravity is an omnipresent force, you know. I wish it wasn't. We do a lot of work to preserve what soil we have, but it's, you know, it's almost impossible to be totally 100%. Unless it's a drought year where it doesn't rain. If it rains, you know, we get runoff and some soil goes with it. It's the nature of a mountain vineyard. It's difficult to keep it together. So you've been working in the same vineyard area for 35 years, but in 07, you got a chance to work with an additional vineyard. We bought this uh, property. It was about two miles away, and it, it was a, a vineyard and a winery, formerly called Cinnabar. The owner had passed away, and his estate sold it. And uh, we decided to buy it because we were kind of looking to expand our production. We are making a lot of wines from our neighbor's vineyards under our second-tier wine called Domain Eden, and we were kind of running out of room. So we decided to buy this winery, and it's been a great boon in that the winery is just beautiful. It's so clean and modern and efficient. Everything is really well-engineered. All the systems work. Temperature controls are really modern and precise and um, Which had to be a huge change. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's been a real, for me, you know, as the kind of the manager, it's been a real gift to be able to work in this facility and not have to worry about the kind of the old antiquated systems that were kind of patched together at Mount Eden over the years. And we also, with the purchase, got about 25 acres of vineyard land. About 20 of them are now planted. There was about 14 planted in the beginning, and we planted about six acres at uh, up and uh, over the last eight years or so to kind of fill in the space. We still have a little more, about five more acres to plant before we finish it off. It's uh, a vineyard with different soils in Mount Eden. It's uh, kind of a Los Gatos loam soil, very consistent, beautiful, fertile, red color, very finely textured loam, which is right in the middle of the soil series. Very easy soil, no rocks to speak of. The wines are a little more kind of fruit forward because of the absence of rocks and any, any kind of austerity. And the northern slope kind of gives it more of a cool climate. So it's primarily Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And uh, yeah, it's been a great addition to our family. So it's our third cellar. We have now the, the dubious distinction of having two wineries on two two-mile dirt roads. But it sounds like the character of the wines is somewhat different. Yeah. So all the wine from Domain goes into Domain. It's not ever involved in the Mount Eden estate wine. And conversely, the Mount Eden 
It's just from our original mountain, which is Mount Eden. Sometimes we declassify, especially in the case of Chardonnay. We'll take some of our Chardonnay, estate Chardonnay, and put it into the domain wine. Actually, that's quite a bit. The vintage that we're releasing next is 2013 is about 72% Mount Eden declassified. And so in terms of working with that different fruit, did that give you some perspective? Yeah. Because it was almost like a chance for you to work at a different winery, which... Yeah, it showed me the uniqueness of Mount Eden's character. I mean, there's something about the wine at Mount Eden, and I make wine from other, other vineyard sources in the Santa Cruz Mountains, quite a few actually, that go into the domain wines, the various domain wines. There's something about the wine from Mount Eden that is distinctly different. It says where it's from. It's, it's quite remarkable. It happens every year. It's not that I do anything differently. I mean, I'm pretty conventional in my practices, winemaking, grape growing. But the wines at Mount Eden always speak of that place every time, every year. So what's next for you? I mean, you've been there 35 years. <laughs> you wanted to make 25-year wines, and you've actually been able to see if you did or yeah. not, which is not something everyone gets the chance to do. Right, right. I mean, what's the next plan? Well, my my big project coming up is to plant the remaining acreage at Domain. I also have to do some replanting of some existing vineyards at Mount Eden. So by the time I retire, which is, who knows, maybe 10 years or so, all of the major vineyard projects that I envision will have been accomplished. So my successor can, you know, inherit some really beautifully situated, well-tended, or good-producing vineyards to make wine from. Yeah. But it's, it's really more of uh, kind of doing planting and replanting. Those are the big, those are the things that keep me occupied at night, you know. I do think that given our historical kind of, kind of focus in, about wine, that using the same plant material over and over again kind of keeps a level of consistency uh, in the wine that we need, you know, that is important to us. We're not interested in changing it too much, you know, especially the wood that has proven to do well for us, you know, keeping it intact. Paul Masson foresaw that Mount Eden would make exceptional wine, and yeah. Jeffrey Patterson has, through many vintages, been trying to fulfill that prophecy. Thank you very much Thank you. for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Jeffrey Patterson of Mount Eden Vineyards in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.